Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. There are a lot of very long books out there that happen to be very good. Middlemarch, War and Peace, Don Quixote, the Neapolitan novels, a lot. And then there are the very long books that you probably won't ever want to read, like Brezhnev's memoirs, Saddam Hussein's hackneyed romance novels, or the Kim family's film theory. This show is about that kind of book, and the man who decided to read all of them. Daniel Calder's part memoir, part book review, mostly scathing summary of that experience which stretched into a number of years and hours that I couldn't even bring myself to ask about, is called The Infernal Library, on dictators, the books they wrote, and other catastrophes of literacy. He plowed through theory, spiritual manifestos, poetry, the odd play, a whole lot of speeches, and even a libretto. Daniel waited out from beneath his pile of dictator lit to talk to us about what it was like to read the bad books of some very bad men and what they tell us about the dictatorial soul, assuming there is one. Thanks for chatting with me, Daniel. Thank you very much. So where did the um, the masochistic desire to read all of the great dictators' greatest hits come from? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I have a high tolerance for boredom and suffering, maybe. Um, I mean, I lived in Russia. I moved to Russia in 1997. So I started renting these apartments, and immediately I was aware that, although it was a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the kind of reminders of these books were everywhere. So I used to rent apartments that were furnished, and the owners had left in a haste, and they would still have the complete works of Lenin on the shelf, like no one had got around to throwing them out. Um, so I was kind of like that was always like in the background, and but I never I never thought I would actually read the stuff because no, nobody was reading it. Um, but then in maybe two thousand two two thousand and three, I read about um, Saddam Hussein's uh, romance novels, The Biba and the King. I, I was just fascinated by this. It triggered memories of Chairman Mao and the Green Book by Gaddafi. And so I asked for it for Christmas, and I, I got it, and, and I read it, and I thought, well, that, that it was it was terrible. <laughs> um, but then I thought, well, there's, there's, there's like a, this is, there's something going on here, you know. And I, I thought, and uh, simultaneously, uh, this was around the time in Turkmenistan. There was a dictator uh, called Turkmen Bashi, and he was uh, starting to become famous. Uh, and Turkmenistan was a, he turned it into this crazy Stalinist Disney World, um, rebuilding it just according to his whims. And I was watching this Russian TV documentary, and they'd gone there and. There was all these images of one of his books called the Ruch Nama. It was this kind of pink and green thing, looked like a terrible children's book. And I thought, wow, this isn't just a historical thing then, you know. So we've got Saddam's writing romance novels, Turkmen Bashi's writing a kind of guide to life. And I managed to find that online. So I downloaded it through the dial-up and I was reading it and it was just excruciatingly awful. And and um, But at the same time, you know, I thought well, it's really interesting that these, these books are so awful and I have the choice to not read them. But millions of people, you know, in the 20th century were forced to read these books. So I thought this is like a like a real a real phenomenon that's worthy of further study. So I travelled in Turkmenistan and I was like face to face with his cult and the cult of the book. 
and that really probably kicked off a kind of like a deeper thoughts about it and then um after a couple of years, I started a series for The Guardian. Uh, I picked some of the most outré and bizarre dictator books. And then I became even more aware of this almost dictatorial canon, if you will, that it wasn't just um, isolated incidences of um, lunatic dictators writing really bad books. There was a, a tradition. Like, um, lots of dictators had done it, and it went all the way back to the start of the 20th century and continues to the present day. And so... <laughs> if nobody else was going to do it, then I would, um, because they're, they're they're very painful to read. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, they're very painful, and yeah, you know, I even think you know there's probably quite a lot of studies of totalitarian art, right? Because you can look at a socialist realist painting, and it, it doesn't really cause you pain, um, or you can listen to even some of the music that was composed, and it might be a bit pompous, um, but. You can even watch like propaganda films, and you know maybe it's over ninety minutes. But you know reading reading books takes a really long time, and uh, and if you read a lot of them, it, it it takes even longer. So yeah, I decided to to climb that mountain. So now that you're at the other end of the tunnel, so to speak, what do you think is at the heart of the dictatorial urge to write? Why posit yourself not only as a brilliant ruler but also as a talented wordsmith? I mean, I think it's an interesting question. Does the ruler come before the wordsmith? Because m many of these guys were they were writers before they were rulers. So Lenin, for example, his career as a writer was a lot longer than his career as, as the head of the Soviet Union. Um, Mussolini, likewise, was a writer for about two decades before he was a leader. They, they began as writers, and I think they had some of the egomania uh, maybe it requires it. And, and they were also sort of um, radical pamphleteers. Uh, they were convinced they knew what was best for everybody. And also some of them were extremely resentful and angry individuals. If you combine these things together, it's, it's, it's not a good combination. Right. But I think there were a bunch of dictators, especially towards the latter end of the century, that sort of flipped the script and were like, oh, OK, so I'm in power. I guess I have to do what everyone else did behind me and write these massive, massive tomes. You know, I think that's absolutely right. So, I mean, I guess I guess if we use, you know, inverted commas, the great dictators, uh, they, they sort of established a precedent, you know, and, and it was this precedent of the, the genius ruler, the genius leader and I think you can see, for example, it's very direct in the case of Gaddafi. So in the 1970s, Gaddafi published The Green Book, which is almost total gibberish, but its very title recalls Mao's Little Red Book. And so there was that sense of like, well, you know, I guess Mao's made this play for being the leader of, of the, the global revolution, so now I have to do it. And then, you know, they would just generate these vast bibliographies by collecting every speech or utterance at the opening of a of a factory. So they started to cheat. And they probably started to cheat quite early on. Um, <laughs> definitely Stalin, you know. He didn't have a vast bibliography, so he was greatly expanding his books by just throwing in every, like, you know, letter to Pravda that had his name on it. Um, and, and so, but yeah, that generation of a vast bibliography was, was key to establishing their reputations as super geniuses, kind of leading the, the theoretical, as well as like political revolutions. Right, whether it holds together or not. That doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it can hold together through violence in a police state, you know? I mean, they weren't inviting like like free criticism of their texts. 
Exactly. So how would you break down the dictator canon uh, into different categories? Like, you know, one that advances ideology, ones that's just wrote dictatorial transcription, fiction, plays. How would you break it down? That's, uh, that's really interesting. So, um, I mean, there was a stupendous pomposity to the to the Soviet dictators, you know. So, I mean, Lenin starts off, it's, it's all very, like, kind of abusive comments and, and debates with other obscure revolutionaries in the 19th century. There was definitely a sense of advancing theory, and then Stalin kind of codified that. And so those books are grandiose, and it's like, yes, this is, this is the movement of history. This is how it applies, da-da-da-da-da. But then I think as the century goes on, communists kept on just cranking out incredibly tedious stuff or having people write it for them or collecting their speeches. But um, but then you do get some sort of auteurs, for want of a better word. And so, you know, Franco, he wrote, in addition to his, like, you know, collected speeches, he wrote this kind of weird screenplay novel uh, called Raza, which was turned into a film, and... Uh, then I think Salazar, the Portuguese dictator, I mean, he had his, like, kind of books of aphorisms and, and theory, but then he also, had, I think he had some poetry. Uh, Chairman Mao was always writing poetry on the side. Um, Ho Chi Minh had some poetry. And and so maybe it was, like, you know, parallel to these, like, serious, almost theological tomes they were inflicting on everybody. They were kind of dabbling in more expressive forms. And then you maybe Gaddafi, it comes together because... His book was meant to be theory, but it's there's like no self control there. I mean, it's just it makes it makes no sense. And then you reach the kind of collapse of ideologies, uh, you know, at the end of the Cold War, and then I mean Saddam Hussein, who had one of these typical volumes of speeches, then he starts writing novels, uh, and apparently he was writing them even right up to the end. This became a big thing for him, uh, just as very close to the end of his regime, he was trying to finish like his last novel. So uh, I guess as, as the as the ideologies started to crumble, m- maybe more of this like personal stuff started to appear. Right. And then I think one of the, my favorite things to learn was that Kim Jong-il was actually kind of a film critic, you know, and his involvement in the Department of Propaganda, which he renamed the Department of Literature and Art or something. Yeah, he was, he was very involved. And um, that was the job his father gave him, was kind of boss of propaganda. And so he, he was very, like, he's thought about it very aesthetically. And so you can read his, his book of film theory has instructions on, you know, what good acting is and what a good script is. And then I think he was involved in the librettos, allegedly, of, of, of some operas. And there was even an award-winning film. And, you know, and there's a very famous story of he kidnapped this uh, South Korean director and forced him to make a communist Godzilla film. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he was very much an esthete, for want of a better word. Um, but, I mean, you know, so was Stalin. You know, he was constantly at the ballet. He famously phoned up uh, Mikhail Bulgakov and uh, he would surprise authors in the middle of the night. Um, somebody's asked him for their opinions on other authors and, and you know, Stalin had been a poet in his youth. The translator of Stalin's poem says he's quite a good poet. I, I can't read Georgian, so I can't comment on that. <laughs> right, and you could see that with Hitler too, obviously, right, with, you know, wanted to be an artist and then went on to, you know, encourage Leni Riefenstahl to make all of these great, grandiose, beautiful, although deplorable films. Yeah, and, you know, Hitler was also a fashion critic. I mean, there's a passage in Mein Kampf where he complains about stovepipe trousers. 
<laughs> so you know, they, they, their genius knew no bounds. I mean, they they they, they were entitled to uh, to opine on everything. And uh, you know, if you're a, a normal author, then your editor will tell you like, uh, no, you know, <laughs> don't do that. I mean, maybe maybe you know, George R R Martin is beyond the point where an editor can tell him what to do. But um, you know, mo- most of us would like hand our manuscripts in and expect some some feedback. Um, but if you imagine you're the editor of like this guy who's got the power of life and death over everybody in the country, you're going to be extremely circumspect in your recommendations if if you make any at all. And and so they were just free to just kind of talk at will and at length about what they wanted, and and, and nobody would tell them it wasn't very good. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, if. if Stalin handed me a book and said, "Go, go, edit that." I think I would be extremely careful about um, the kind of comments I would make. You know, maybe you Just can take out a this comma, comma here and there. <laughs> yeah, take out a comma, you know. So a lot of these dictators sort of ran wild with um, their genius, as you said. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting in your book is that as you went on, you sort of you stopped at various dictators that sort of introduced um, a new theme into the dictator canon. Can you talk about? Some of those stops along the evolution of dictator lit. I think one of the main things is is as it kind of goes on, and the ideologies become older and and more and more stale. There wasn't really much scope to to add to it. So I think you know the gates of interpretation had been closed, and so you know if you're meant to like establish yourself as a theorist, it was very difficult. So they kind of wrote about nothing, but then. I think what I saw was as it kind of goes on, you do start to see, for example, that that introduction of something more subjective. I mean, so Kim Il Sung, for example, he'd sort of published this biography where he's the superhero, and you know Stalin had a biography, but it's not it's not like subjective. It's like Stalin as a historical figure it doesn't really tell you anything about Stalin, but this kind of the inner feelings of dictators start to appear, and then I think for me, what's very interesting is around like the late nineteen seventies. Uh, Brezhnev and Enver Hodja uh, are almost simultaneously publishing memoirs. And Hodja wrote, uh, he was uh, heavily involved in his memoirs, whereas Brezhnev's were, were ghostwritten. Um, but I, I kind of like that idea of having your memoirs outsourced to somebody else. <laughs> um, but it's kind of interesting that at this this point when the Soviet Union was like really, really stagnant and communism had hit a dead end, it's like they're casting around and they just they gaze within even if they're outsourcing the gazing within to somebody else, it was like they do that. And so start writing these more like personal narratives. You know, and Hodja, I mean, a really interesting, well, I use those words, you know, advisedly, not really interesting, but he wrote this like book about his encounters with Stalin and he he really idolised Stalin. And and it's just like his memories of, of sitting on the couch watching a movie with Stalin. You know, and there's a kind of frustration there because it's like, wow. I mean, I, you know, at, at the beginning, you asked me, what, why did I become really fascinated by this? And I thought, well, wouldn't it be really interesting? You know, these people, these dictators, they've had this incredible power, you know, and to really understand what it's like to, you know, you know, you read a book to, to understand, you know, the inner workings of people's souls or, or motivations. And so I kind of knew I wasn't going to find that. Um, but I thought there might be glimpses of it, uh, and so you know, there's 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 just moments in Hodge's book. It's almost like this like fanboy on the couch who's really excited to meet his idol, or like in you know Brezhnev's memoirs, he's kind of in the war, and and even though 
Brezhnev was just a, he was a kind of propaganda officer. So he didn't like do any actual fighting. And I mean, there's a moment when he shoots a gun, but it, he doesn't actually do anything. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, even in this ghost-written version where he's a hero, they couldn't go that far and make out that he was some kind of warrior, you know. And and then, you know, and so then this personalization continues and then... Um, and then we wind up, you know, with Saddam Hussein's like romance novels and and Turkmen Bashi and and even Vladimir Putin's judo manual. It's almost now like just about any old trivia will do, you know, as the ideologies become weaker. Right, as the idols die, I guess, like in the landscape of a uh, post USSR Europe and Central Asia. You know, when the idol is gone, when the ideology is gone, the dictator form continues. So, I mean, what happens to to dictator lit when the mothership crashes? Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. It's like it's sort of well, you still have the form, but but what content? So in the twentieth century, there's this idea, I guess, that you know you had to have a book, and so after it all crashes, it's like the book lives on in, in some places. It's like there's still this compulsion to have a book, but you don't really know what should be in it, um, and so they, they keep generating them. And I, mean, I would say, you know, in some regards, you know, Russia is. I mean, Putin took a long time. I mean, he put out a judo manual and then there's a book of interviews, but it was a long, long time before he put out a collection of his speeches. So, I mean, maybe like in Russia, they're a little bit more tired of these books. But then in other places, certainly in Central Asia, they they, they just kept on cranking them out. And so you get uh, Kazakhstan, like Nazarbayev, oh, open for business. Uh, You know, almost like Davos man, dictator literature, you know, we're open for business. Or in, in you know in Turkmenistan you get this like weird autobiography, Tajikistan um, you get this strange attempt to resurrect uh, you know Zoroaster and make him into some kind of Soviet socialist realist hero. There's all types of attempts to find an idea and and, and turn them into something. And uh, I mean I think those I mean those ideas aren't particularly convincing if you're outside of it and. And the minute these dictators die or, or, or fall, these these books fade away. But there's still mm-hmm. this, this desire to generate them. Um, you know, and, and actually, interestingly, the Chinese Communist Party announced they're going to lift this two-term limit for their leaders. And I, I, you know, I did a quick search and I discovered that, you know, Xi Jinping has been uh, kind of assiduously publishing books, you know, for the last couple of years. Like there's a ready-made bibliography there for people now to study, given the history of uh, those kind of books in China. Uh, you know, it's. I was I was really struck that he already had like two big books of of theory. There's a memoir there too on on his experience during the Cultural Revolution. So the books are there. Uh, so they they don't go away. They linger on. Right. So what are you reading next? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, I might actually be reading Xi Jinping's book next. To be honest, I mean, uh, so maybe I should like maybe I sh- maybe I should stop. You know, but just when I saw the news, I was I was on Amazon and I got to order that. <laughs> so, so I don't know, um, but we'll see. There are links in the episode page for any of you souls brave enough to enter into the heart of the dark dictatorial canon yourself, plus a link to Daniel Calder's new book, The Infernal Library. Abandon all hope, ye who enter there. Next week, we're talking about good political writing political fiction, written by totally normal people who are definitely not dictators. Bobby Ann Mason, the author of the short story in our spring issue, will be joining us. Till then, take care and stay sharp.